Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 54, Susanna Rishlack Allen, examining the admissibility of living victim photographs in murder trials. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Susanna Rishlack Allen, a recent graduate of Vanderbilt Law School and the 2016-2017 Editor-in-Chief of the Vanderbilt Law Review. Our podcast today features Susanna's new paper, I See Dead People examining the admissibility of living victim photographs in murder trials. Susanna's piece tackles a new type of evidentiary rule that is emerging in state courts across the country, so-called living victim statutes. These statutes, the product of intense lobbying by victims' rights groups, mandate that victim photographs shall be admissible in criminal homicide prosecutions. Susanna's paper provides a holistic examination of the emergence and impact of living victim statutes. Recognizing that the evidentiary rule largely constitutes a usurpation of 403, Susanna ultimately questions whether living victim statutes accord with the underlying purposes of state evidentiary regimes and the constitutional protections afforded to defendants. My conversation with Susanna today begins with an exploration of the mechanics of living victim statutes before we focus, in particular, on the rule's normative undesirability and pathways for potential reform. Susanna, welcome to the show. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. Your paper challenges us to take a critical look at a newly emerging rule of evidence that is playing an increasingly important role in state murder trials the so-called living victim rule. What does this rule entail? Yeah, so this is an evidence rule that has emerged in a handful of state evidence codes. And what this rule mandates is that in a criminal homicide prosecution, that a photo of the victim while they were alive shall be admissible during the guilt phase of the trial for the purported purpose of showing the victim and the condition that they were in while they were alive. So these aren't crime scene photos or anything. Think more like Facebook profile picture. And what the paper discusses is that these laws have the purpose and effect of eliminating judicial discretion to exclude these living victim photos. Now, it seems like the admissibility of these living victim photographs could comfortably be evaluated under Rule 403, which would, of course, see their relevance weighed against their unfair prejudice. But perhaps working through a Rule 403 analysis quickly will shed light on why state lawmakers felt the need to ensure that courts categorically admit these victim photographs. First, Susanna, what have courts said about their relevance? Just like any piece of proffered evidence in states without these rules or, you know, these states with these statutes before they adopted them, courts generally have analyzed admissibility of a photo of the victim while they were alive under the typical 403 balancing test, which, you know, first entails considering their probative value. 
as you may expect, courts are not necessarily uniform in their approach and analysis, but the paper notes that many courts have routinely excluded these photos because they really have no relevance on the issues at trials. No one um, is generally disputing that in a homicide trial, the victim was a person who was once alive. And so if their relevance is weak, what have courts said about the possibility that victim photographs might introduce unfair prejudice into the courtroom? So in addition to holding that they have little to no relevance, courts have often excluded these living victim photos on the grounds that they really have the potential to unnecessarily arouse the sympathy of the jury. Courts have noted that often the purpose that the prosecution is seeking to introduce these photos is really to humanize the victim and tug at the heartstrings to kind of show more fully the horror of a homicide, which is really the core of unfair prejudice. Perfect. So that 403 analysis then is quite revealing. Uh, A number of our listeners will likely pick up on the fact that the living victim rule is quite the anomaly in that unlike other evidentiary rules which pursue relevance or reliability aims, these living victim rules seem premised on an entirely different normative goal. Now you touched on this a little bit earlier, but just elaborate a little bit more. What is that normative goal? What the legislative background of these living victim photo rules makes clear is that the normative goal of the rule is really to allow the prosecution to humanize the victim during the trial and to show the impact of the loss of that victim on the family and the community. And, you know, we can, of course, understand why families of victims may desire this, but that does not necessarily mean that it's an appropriate consideration for promulgating evidence rules. Things like victim impact statements during the sentencing phase of a trial sort of allow these types of considerations to have a role in the criminal justice system, but we've generally seen them kept out of the guilt phase. Now, one of the things that I really like about your paper is that it couples its theoretical account of the living victim rule with a fascinating descriptive account of how state lawmakers have actually pushed the rule into reality. Here, let's take Tennessee as an example. How did the living victim rule come to be enacted there? So similar to what we were just discussing, in Tennessee, that living victim photo statute was actually lobbied for by a victim's rights groups. And in the discussion surrounding the bill and in the legislative history, Tennessee legislators explicitly discussed the statute's goal of humanizing victims during a homicide trial. One concern that was raised by the group lobbying for the bill was that because Tennessee courts often excluded living victim photos during trial under the normal 403 analysis, that often the only representation that a jury would see of a victim was a crime scene photo, i.e., you know, would only see them as dead and not as alive, and that really bothered victims' families. And so that concern sort of came into the legislature's awareness and was a reason that they pushed for this. And interestingly, in one of the early drafts of that rule, it had a provision that said, it would have allowed the victim's families to actually be able to select the photo that will be introduced at trial, but that did not make it into the final draft. And supporters of this bill also sort of argued that all other crime victims have the right to be present during a trial, but murder victims are not afforded that opportunity. And so legislatures saw this as a way to allow these victims to be represented. So the Tennessee legislature adopted this rule in 2015 which effectively amended Rule 403 to carve out an exception for these living victim photos. Though in the Tennessee Code, interestingly, this provision is actually found within the Victim's Bill of Rights. Now, your paper notes that the actual effect of Tennessee's living victim statute, what you refer to as, quote, Rule 403 purgatory, differed from its intended effect, 
Rule 403 Elimination. Tell us more about this unintended consequence. So there hasn't actually been much case law in Tennessee yet applying or discussing this rule because it was enacted fairly recently. But Oklahoma, Oregon, and Utah all have similar living victim photo statutes on the books and have had them for a bit longer. So the paper tries to use lessons from those states to make predictions about how the rule might play out in Tennessee courts. So for example, Oregon courts interpreting that state's living victim photo statute have said unequivocally 403 plays absolutely no role in considering whether a photo should be admitted because the legislature has decided that it's admissible and I call that the 403 elimination approach. But in Oklahoma, on the other hand, those courts have concluded that even in light of the mandatory admissibility language in the living victim photo statute, trial court judges actually retain the discretion to exclude living victim photos for the traditional unfair prejudice concerns under 403, which, you know, sounds good. But this purported retention of discretion does not actually comport with the reality of how it has played out in courts. Instead, before the living victim photo statute in Oklahoma, these photos were routinely excluded under 403 considerations. But now, post-enactment, these photos are uniformly admitted, even though courts still claim to retain discretion under 403 to exclude them. So it's clear that 403 isn't operating in the same way. So this sort of two-slits application of 403 is what I label 403 purgatory, and I posit that this 403 purgatory is in a way more harmful than recognizing the 403 elimination because it makes it more difficult to scrutinize these living victim photo rules. And the paper gets at this more, but there are certain semantic similarities between the Oklahoma and Tennessee statute that make it plausible that Tennessee could take a similar approach to Oklahoma and end up in this kind of 403 purgatory. Though I will say that post-enactment of the statute in Tennessee, most of the secondary sources and things like that interpret this rule as mandating admissibility not subject to 403. You offer two potential solutions to the current quandaries caused by the living victim rule, what you refer to as, quote, use it or lose it options. Let's begin with the former. What do you mean by the use it approach? My solutions aren't necessarily recommendations to courts about how to resolve questions surrounding these statutes, but instead really just represent ways to think about how a court might approach them at a conceptual level. So use it is about as simple as it sounds. Under this approach, I posit that courts could meaningly preserve their discretion to exclude these photos under 403 analysis, even in light of the contrary statutory intent. For instance, Tennessee's statute states that a living victim photo must be an appropriate representation of the victim, and perhaps in deciding what is appropriate, a court could look to these traditional 403 considerations and preserve its discretion. But I recognize that this is a potentially unsatisfactory solution because, first of all, in some states, this has already been foreclosed as an option by judicial decisions. And also, reading these statutes, they make reasonably clear that they intend to take 403 considerations out of the mix. Well, perhaps in light of that recognition, you alternatively recommend under the lose-it approach that courts could or should invalidate the living victim rule as violative of a defendant's constitutional rights. Tell us more about that argument. Under the lose-it approach, I 
posit that the courts could consider taking these statutes at face value. That is, recognizing that they eliminate 403 considerations for these photos and mandate their admissibility. And maybe given this, a court could conclude that while we think this mandatory admissibility of these types of photos has the purpose of arousing sympathy from the jury and this is fundamentally unfair in a way that violates defendants' due process rights. Admittedly, this is a long shot, but perhaps in some specific criminal trial, the admission of a living victim photo under one of these statutes might rise to the level of a due process violation. Now, I want to challenge a premise underlying both of your solutions, that the living victim rule is inherently flawed. It seems to me that one could argue that all rules of evidence involve normative trade-offs, some beneficial for defendants and others beneficial for prosecutors. And some of our more established evidentiary rules, like Rules 609, 413, and 414, are similar to the living victim rule in that they have long been criticized as Rule 403 bypasses and unduly harsh to defendants. So what separates the living victim rule from these similarly criticized rules? So as for Rule 609, which allows impeachment of witnesses by evidence of a prior criminal conviction, as the paper points out, Rule 609A2 is actually the only mandatory admissibility provision in the federal rules. That's prior crimes of deceit of testifying witnesses must be admissible as impeachment evidence. For other prior convictions under 609, there remains some level of balancing of the probative value versus the prejudice of introducing those convictions that the court engages in. What I think also distinguishes Rule 609 is that its goal is really about the integrity of the court and the judicial proceedings. So to me, it makes a little bit more sense that if there's going to be a mandatory admissibility provision, that this is it. And you could also argue that this doesn't really raise the same fairness concerns because it goes specifically to the credibility of witnesses and does not necessarily directly implicate the guilt of defendants. But I think you're absolutely right to make the analogy to Rules 413 and 414, which allow prior similar acts by a defendant to be introduced in a prosecution for sexual assault or child molestation, which essentially suspends the Rule 404 prohibition on prior act evidence for the propensity rationale. And the paper briefly makes the point that, similar to the living victim photo statutes on the state level, on the national level, Rules 413 and 414 did not actually go through the typical Rules Enabling Act procedure for enacting rules of evidence. And instead, they were passed at the behest of Congress as a part of the Violence Against Women's Act. And at the time of their passage, and now still, many in the legal community have expressed concern that These rules allow improper considerations and can raise fairness and constitutional concerns for criminal defendants. So sort of similar to the living victim photo statutes, at the surface level, these rules seek to forward really normatively desirable goals. That is, you know, making it easier to prove sex crimes, just like the living victim photo statutes seek to make homicide trials more empathetic towards victims' families. But these considerations both raise real fairness concerns about defendants in the trial process. I will note two things, however, that I think separate the living victim photo rules and rules 413 and 414. So first, unlike the living victim photo rules, although prior sex crimes can be admitted under rules 413 and 414, rule 403 is generally still seen as operating in the background to allow judges to exercise their discretion to exclude this prior act evidence if they find it unduly prejudicial. 
We talked some about 403 purgatory, but with living victim photo statutes, this is generally not the case. They are viewed as mandating admissibility without regard to this 403 balancing. But the paper also points out that scholars have raised concerns that under rules 413 and 414, the 403 analysis has been a bit skewed by the legislature's decision to deem these past crimes as probative. But I think the important point is that 403 still operates in the background. Second, I think that the living victim photo statutes can be distinguished from rules 413 and 414 in that they've really not seen the same level of scholarly attention. 413 and 414 have really been examined and critiqued quite a lot by the scholarly community, and it's understandable why they were congressionally mandated and arguably deal with evidence that's potentially much more prejudicial than a victim photograph. But still the same sort of attention is not really being paid to the smaller bottom-up grassroots movement taking place in states that also result in changes to the evidence rules. So I do think that there are analogies to other rules of evidence that can be made, but those rules are not necessarily without their own flaws as well. Final question, Susanna. What's next for the literature? What type of paper would shed additional insight on this issue? So I've been thinking about this, and I have a couple of ideas. First, I think that a paper probing at the line between what evidence is admitted at the factual guilt stage and what evidence is admitted at the victim impact stage of sentencing could be interesting. These living victim photos to me have always kind of had a flavor of victim impact evidence because the purpose is to help convey the effect of crime on the victims and their families and the community and kind of personify the victim. And I wonder if there are other types of evidence that end up on the wrong side of this line and how much seepage between these two areas is allowable or appropriate. And another larger theme that I think the literature is examining and will continue to examine is who gets to be the arbiter of what fact finders can and cannot consider. You mentioned earlier that all evidence rules can be viewed as trade-offs. And I think that we may want to ask who are the proper parties to decide these trade-offs and based on what? That is, who should decide what policy considerations influence admissibility determinations? I think that we have traditionally thought of judges as the arbiters, but the more that there is this legislative influence and this legislative push to change evidence rules, and like here, statutes making admissibility determinations, the less in control of these determinations courts will be. And legislatures are responsive to constituents and not necessarily to the concerns of the criminal justice system in the way that a judge is. I think that this also counsels for the continued scholarly examination of criminal justice in state courts evidentiary and procedural rules create the framework inside of which prosecutions operate, and the vast majority of criminal cases in this country are tried in state court. And as I mentioned earlier, on the federal level, rule changes really and rightly get a lot of attention, but I think that in state courts, we aren't really giving them the same level of scrutiny, and I think that that makes this a potentially rich area of continued scholarly examination. Well, Susanna, it's really been great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure. To my mind, Susanna's insight regarding the normative undesirability of living victim statutes implicates a broader issue worthy of discussion. When does legislative action encroach on a defendant's constitutional right to a fair trial? At first glance, this question might seem counterintuitive. After all, 
The legislative branch is largely responsible for having established our modern procedural rules and evidentiary regime in the first place. That is, the legislature is the ultimate architect of the modern American trial. Where, say, Congress has historically disagreed with judges and scholars as to how evidentiary issues in the courtroom should be handled, for instance, how many privileges the federal rules of evidence should explicitly recognize, it has been Congress's design that has ultimately prevailed. So given that it is the legislative branch that controls our trials, what can it even mean for there to be legislative encroachment on the constitutional right to a fair trial? The answer here perhaps lies at a nexus of sociological, historical, and philosophical accounts. The concept of a fundamentally fair trial is not a constitutional creation. Although enshrined in the penumbral values of the Constitution, a fair trial itself is a concept with a lineage dating as far back as the Magna Carta. As defined by Sixth Circuit Judge Danny Boggs, it is a notion that implies, quote, an impartial decision-maker and an atmosphere conducive to consideration, with relevant evidence considered and irrelevant evidence excluded. It is a proceeding aimed primarily at improving the chances of arriving at a verdict that accords with some notion of pre-existing objective truth. Judge Boggs's doctrinal account largely accords with empirical scholars such as Tom Tyler, who define a fair trial in terms of procedural fairness, and legal philosophers such as Ronald Dworkin, Lon Fuller, and John Rawls, who see a fair trial as a manifestation of an equity that is a constitutive element of the rule of law itself. Ultimately, then, a fair trial is not an adjudicatory procedure defined, established, or constrained by a legislature. It instead predates and supersedes legislative will. This notion, if accepted, materially changes how we should evaluate lawmakers' responsibility in creating trial and evidence rules. To be sure, the legislative branch maintains significant leeway to design trials as it sees fit. For example, whether Rule 801 D1A should only make admissible hearsay statements proffered when the declarant was under oath, or should instead apply to all past inconsistent statements, is an analysis that falls within the largely unconstrained purview of the legislative branch, as its resolution will not generally affect a defendant's right to a fair trial. Yet despite this significant leeway, there also appears to exist a sphere, an unalterable core to fair trial adjudication that the legislative branch cannot alter. For instance, one can imagine certain evidentiary rules that would likely be struck down as unconstitutional for violating a defendant's right to a fair trial. To take an extreme position for illustrative purposes, it is safe to say that an evidentiary rule allowing a prosecutor to admit highly prejudicial falsehoods against a defendant would render a trial unfair. Although the rule takes the formal appearance of an evidentiary mandate, it functionally operates to secure convictions through unfair means. We thus arrive at the question I initially introduced. If we know that, as a general rule, legislators have significant flexibility in designing procedural and evidentiary rules in the courtroom, but there nonetheless exists certain measures that the legislative branch cannot take because they would violate a defendant's right to a fair trial, where does that line of demarcation fall? That is, 
At what point does a legislative action transform from a managerial rule merely establishing courtroom practice to an encroachment violating a defendant's constitutional right to a fundamentally fair trial? The answer to this question is likely to have significant implications as living victim statutes and other similar statutes disadvantaging defendants become increasingly common. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Excited Utterance is produced by Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parkeranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your guest host, Alex Nutt. I hope you have enjoyed listening to the podcast this summer as much as I have enjoyed producing it. The four papers we examined over the past month truly demonstrate the impressive potential of the next generation of evidence scholars. Excited Utterance will pick up again this fall when Ed Chang returns to take on more works in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>